we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hey, Sam, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Hannah, yourself? Yeah, I'm good. I am looking forward to today's guest. Yes, a very exciting guest we have today. Yes. Who we got? We have the awesome Ellie Garland. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on, Ellie. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, now, Ellie, the first question we ask people is, where did you grow up? Oh, I might get shivved for this, um, specifically in that location, but it was Ipswich. Oh. <laughs> yes. Awesome. So I spent my primary school to early high school years in Ipswich and then moved to Raby Bay with um, the rest of the family. Awesome. So how did you get into the disability sector? Uh, I was doing nursing for quite a while and then got into, yeah, got into the disability sector through that way. So there was, after I left nursing, I had a really bad mental health turn Um wasn't working for about 18 months and typical DES providers were like, oh my God, you have healthcare experience. You've cared for someone. You'd be perfect at this. So threw me into a Cert 3, which I really was like, what's the point? Uh, but it gave me some decent knowledge on the community sector rather than the clinical side. And then got my first job in stills and moved from basic psychosocial SILs into high complex medical disability SDA homes and went from there. Decided that after working for some very narrow-minded providers that it was time to open up my own business and allow people to shine and be who they want to be without the confines of a box. Yeah, that's... Great. So how about you tell us a little bit about Pride's support? How did, the, so it got started after you got a bit sick of the other, working for other people? Yes. So came home one night after another long, tedious shift uh, with a participant and he wanted to attend Pride and the facilitator was like, oh, I just don't think that's within our scope. That's not something, you know, we're going to be able to support. So I've come home, hit the wine. My husband, now husband was like, let's go to Ikea and we'll, you know, we'll vent and look at some new beds and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, all right. Walking through Ikea half cut 
and we were like looking online at business only names. Only way to do a gaia. Exactly. <laughs> only way. Yeah. So walking through IKEA, looking at business names online, I was like, we just got to do something. Like I'm sick to fucking death of listening to these poor participants, you know, give feedback and not be listened. So he was like, well, you should do something. It's like fucking challenge. Let's do it. Yeah. So, yeah, Pride Support came up as a business name, but it was spelled with a Y. So we're like, that's different. That's nice. It's unique. Let's go with that. Uh, started in Feb 2021 with just myself and two participants. Soon after, I landed a rather big participant, 10 hours a day, like five, six days a week. I was like, damn, I need staff. I hired, I think it was about three people um, and grew from there. In March 2021, we moved to a Priory Limited. Uh, we now have just shy of 50 staff and 40-something participants. Gosh, wow. That's awesome. Quite a bit of growth there. Well done. Yes, thank you. So we um. Pre- our niche is obviously the LGBTQI community. That's I work a lot with youth um, that are looking at transitioning, wanting to explore their gender, uh, youth that just want to explore the community and understand it more. So we try and get to a lot of expos and you know be as loud as we can um, to ensure that people know we're out there and that there are supports for people who do identify on NDIS. Because mm, it's, a, it's a pretty tough space. What what do you see when participants come to you and Prides? Why, what's drawing them to, to Prides rather than your standard um, NDIS provider? Do you have Honestly, a question there? Yeah. Um, from what I've seen and from what people, participants have said and families have said, it's it goes back to staff. So it always goes back to staff. Staff don't feel that they can be themselves with a mainstream provider. So if, you know, a trans staff member wants to apply for a mainstream provider job, they feel they can't because they won't be able to be themselves. They'll be like told to sit in the box, shut up and do your job. So at least with us, they can be who they want to be and the participants see that whether it be through word of mouth uh community engagement seeing them in the community expos for other coordinators that liaise with us they get told that we have identifying staff staff are part of this community staff are part of that community and we always try and partner a you know trans worker with a trans participant so they have that safe person they can be themselves with whilst receiving the necessary supports they need. Same with, you know, youth, not that we hire youth, but like young participants with young workers, gay participants with gay workers, things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it's it's a bit of a different point because a lot of the time we're talking about how providers um, deliver supports in an inclusive manner, but a lot of the time they forget that element where people centric and we've got to remember that we need to empower our staff as well as both the participant to meet that whole journey and make it beneficial for everyone involved there. 
exactly. I think it, from from my perspective, it is often difficult to find providers that are happy to work with um, people from our community because they're they're nervous to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing mm. or something like that. And, or, you know, we live in Brisbane that is a pretty conservative <laughs> city and a lot of providers, like you said, Ellie, are afraid and they're like, oh, no, that's way out of our scope. We can't possibly do that. Um and I think that's it. That's why it's so important that you exist, um, so that there is a place for our community. And I, I just think it's it's so wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree. There, um, I see it when I work with coordinators, plan managers, different stakeholders, and they have a young identifying participant or you know an identifying participant doesn't matter what age they're like oh I think I think they're gay I'm not sure like I, I do I ask that am I okay to ask that I'm like well if you don't ask you can't better yourself you can't educate yourself you won't know you won't have the knowledge you won't know how to work with them or any other person that comes onto your books and identifies so it's definitely about educating the stakeholders and wider providers and community as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the issues that we see are unique to our community in that things like, you know, being pushed out of home by parents Mm -hmm. at a young age because they're not accepting um, and those sorts of issues. So when you find a provider that, understands and wants to support you and take you to pride and um whatever all of those sorts of festivals so that you can be in around people in your community is so so important to feel part of something greater than you most definitely that is very accurate yeah great have you now, Ellie, um, you are transgender, and <laughs> so it's funny when when we do this because we know, you know, and we're friends. But for the sake of the podcast, I thought I'd I'd say that, and just I want I think you know I'm cis, but I work with a lot of um, transgender participants and. Um, you know, I'm married to someone who's transgender and so I do get to see some of the issues within the NDIS in particular because that's the space we work in. Um, but do you want to – I'm curious from your perspective, what have been some of the difficulties you've found for transgender participants within the NDIS? Oh, where to start? Um, there's a number of ways we could take this and many, many roads we can go down. My biggest thing I see is if they're not receiving the 
appropriate gender affirming care they need within the healthcare system, it affects their disability, whether that be psychosocial, chronic pain, you know, fatigue, ASD, physical disabilities, it drastically affects and enhances what they're going through. Um, so to take it away from them for a bit, I'm sitting at home at the moment because I have chronic pain in my hips today. Like it is excruciating. I could not drive an hour to do the podcast in person, unfortunately. That has taken a toll on my mental health today. Like the just thinking of leaving the house is like, no, not going to do it. Don't want to face the world. Imagine that with ASD on top of it, chronic fatigue and pain, ADHD, anything else that you can imagine that would exacerbate that tenfold, if not more. So it goes back to NDIS and the mainstream healthcare systems working together in conjunction to say, hey, this person's going through this. Let's make a plan together so their supports can action it and execute it with them. Not having what they're currently doing, presenting to ED, presenting to their GP. Oh, you've got NDIS. Fantastic. They will take care of absolutely everything. Don't worry about it. You can use your funding for whatever. They mm. come to us. They ask the question, hey, I've got this, I need to, you know, can I use my funding for gender affirming medication? Can I use my funding for gender affirming surgery? Can I use it to go over to Thailand to get a breast augmentation? You know, very relevant questions that the medical providers are palming off to us. And we're like, well, no, it's not directly related to your disability. But taking that other stance and look at it, well, yes, it is directly related to their disability because they're not getting the correct care. So it exacerbates their disability. So if they just worked together and spoke, then I think they would be able to receive better care from us, the NDIS sector, and from their gender-affirming healthcare providers. Yeah, it, it the, the tier two, or, or what's generally called within the sector as tier two, which is mainstream supports, mm. is already lacking within non-specific LGBT or some of the other culturally diverse areas that are in the sector. Um, it just seems like when we have this other layer of complexity, that they're, they're so far short of where they should be as well. Correct. Yeah, I think one of the things I do when I initially have a participant, when they initially sign up with me, is the first thing I do is go, okay, do you have a GP? Let's get you a GP that is affirming. And... Mm. Because even if you, you know, have a cold or not that you necessarily go to the doctor for a cold, but, you know, it, even if it's something like that, a lot of GPs are very dismissive when it's a trans person. And that's really infuriating and is very difficult then for that person to trust the rest of the medical system. And... That's then 
exacerbates, like you say, exacerbates everything else. The other thing I find particularly within the NDIS difficult is the issue with um, when you call the call centre and sometimes I've had... I, because as support coordinators we're meant to be capacity building, um, I try to get the participant to talk on the call as much as possible for themselves and the call centre will say, oh, no, I can't verify who you are because you your voice sounds wrong, like for, for your name and whatever, your details within yep. that system. Which is incorrect. That's not mm-hmm. part of the screening system. <laughs> um, but this has happened a few times and it's something that is is so simple but is so difficult, makes everything more difficult. So, yeah, it's something that, that I try and explain to people as well. 100%. I... I get it. I get it when I call the banks, I get it when I call Medicare, when I call my um, private health provider. It's just, oh, your name doesn't match your voice. Well, fantastic. Why does it have to match my voice? You have an AI voice reader there that is like screening everyone. I doubt it. I can imagine what it's, only imagine what it's like for these participants when they're trying to get answers to their funding or, you know, find out what's happening with their plan review or get, just get information or, you know, just call and talk to an LAC because they need, they need something. And they're like, oh, um, and yeah. And they're, you know, turned away because, you know, their voice doesn't match their name. I'm sorry, but how many, you know, cis women out there are called Alex and how many men out there are called Alex? You know, it, your name has nothing to do with anything, really. It's it's a name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be yeah. really disheartening and, and infuriating. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I think is really difficult for people who aren't surrounded by this constantly is to understand about a dead name. So... The dead name, to really quickly explain to people, is um, the name that you were given by your parents. Um, and often, it because it doesn't suit you when you transition, you pick a new name. And so, the, the old name is the dead name. It's gone. <laughs> and what we don't like to see is having to dead name our participants um and now obviously there's the new system where you can just fill in a form and they're happy to have your chosen name if you haven't been able to change it officially because it is expensive to do um but still when you call the call center you do need to say your your dead name um and I find this very difficult, particularly for plan managers, because they want the invoices in the dead name. And I don't like even having that like in my system. And I often mm. am like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> uh, I like I'm I always hope to 
either not know or forget that I know the dead name because it's not something that I want to be thinking about. Um, so that's that's where I again find it it pretty um, difficult within the NDIS system and and with plan managers. Correct. It is difficult, um, especially with plan managers. As you said, we nearly all of our plan managers are like if we send an invoice with the participant's name on it and it's you know not their dead name they're like no we can't we can't pay this or who's this for so we're lucky in a way that our system will allow us to have on a rostering and management side we can have have their name but only on the accounting side it has their dead name so we don't see it the accounts payable do but in brackets, it has, so it's their name and then in brackets, it's their dead name. So accounts know who they're dealing with. Because even when we talk to accounts in regards to, um, you know, shift cancellations, you're paying wages, things like that, we use, we use proper names. Mm. So they get confused when they go to send invoices and they're like, who is this person? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Then, yeah. So having the dead name in brackets helps them but it also appeases the plan managers they're like yeah that that'll do yeah. that's fine we can process that yeah thank you for your service <laughs> yeah yeah i it is something i think is <clears throat> overlooked um and is is very annoying um then another one i've had was um, I was trying to organise a cleaner for a participant and the cleaner then called the participant and again it was the voice issue and said, oh, called me back and said, oh, I thought you said, you know, this person was female and I said, yeah, they are. And she's like, oh, well, uh, some other person answered the phone. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> no, they didn't. It was that person, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's it's just sometimes I despair when at some of the naivety of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. And I find it's more predominant in male to female trans people yeah. than it is female to male and even softly spoken cis men don't get questioned. Yeah. You know, so it's, I don't know why, but it's this stigma and it's an issue that the wider community needs to be aware of mm. and they just need to be aware of it in terms of themselves so they can fix it and they can make other people aware of it and catch themselves when they go to ask the question, oh, is this really blank? I think that's that's a really simple way of doing it. Yep. <laughs> you know, easy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, if, if, you, you've tweaked some of my thought process in, throughout this conversation and how to support other providers and as part of that identification process, how we can be a bit more inclusive and not uh, avoid some of these pain points that 
like the the community experiencing when they're approaching providers and other other mainstream supports or organizations yeah most definitely there's definitely a lot that the uh sector and businesses can do to try and minimize this so i hope hope there's lots of people listening listening out there that start thinking about how they can uh reduce this this down as well yeah absolutely so ellie what is um uh, have you got a couple of tips for providers who are listening and going oh yeah how can they better support um lgbtiq plus participants listen just shut up and listen to them if they say they want to do something if they're telling you something's wrong if they're expressing concerns listen and then work with them to put a plan of action into place regardless of what it is yeah 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 that's exactly (laughs) yeah yeah what she said (laughs) (laughs) listening skills are something to be desired yes Yes. as we say in cadets listening ears please listening ears (laughs) awesome yeah i think we need to get a lot of providers enrolled in the cadet program Look, happy to have them. Unfortunately, it is only 12 to 18. So so if providers do want more training in how to support LGBTIQ plus participants, Mm -hmm. um, I do run training for that. And But where else could they go? Because, like, I'm good but I can't do the world (laughs) um where else have you found good training ellie um there's the only other place that i've well actually no there's two so open doors run training for lgbtqi people what i found with them though it's more of a trauma-informed care to work with lgbtqi people um they do run other programs every now and then honestly i'd have to look at eventbrite or their website um so i'm not too sure on how they work or exactly what they educate people on Uh, there's a provider in sydney called chosen family that do training as well Uh, i'm not again i've only heard of them haven't spoken to anyone from there so i'm not entirely sure how they run their training. We had Trady on episode three. Love Trady. Oh, <laughs> so there we go. Plug for, for listening to episode three. <laughs> yeah. um, Hold on, I feel, feel like the conversation when you're, you've been uh, struggling with your tea has gone a lot more PG than that conversation <laughs> with Trady. <laughs> yes. When I struggled with my tea last time, I should have learned from then and just not have tea when I'm podcasting. Um, I don't do training. But I will happily talk to people and educate them. As I said at the beginning, we get a lot of inquiries from parents simply just wanting information. And whether it be information and guidance on gender affirming clinics in the area, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, other providers, coordinators, whoever it may be, I can push them in the right direction and say these are the people we work with closely 
I've referred quite a few people to clinics in the Newmarket area as well as the Windsor area. Um, and they do, you know, phenomenal work. Yep. So it's not so much training, but guidance. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that, I mean, that's also super useful. And then there's also PFLAG, um, not in terms of training, but if parents and family um, PF want to know where to go, PFLAG is a really good one. Yeah, um, they are. Um, I think I pushed my mum towards that when I was a kid. I was like, oh, you should look at this. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think she, she knew when you were quite small? Um. Uh, yes, I believe she did. Um, so prior to my transition, I was a gay male. Um, she always knew I was gay, which is not surprising because she's a flaming lesbian as well. So it was a very supportive household, loud, colourful, really good. Um, I think it was when I started to wear high heels to work and you know, explore makeup, she was like, yeah, okay, something, something more's going on. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome though, that she yeah. was uh, very affirming. Yeah. I had the very. pleasure of me- meeting your, your wonderful mother at the, at your wedding reception. And she is definitely the out and outstanding woman. Hilarious. Yes. yes, she is. I'd be lost without her. Oh, and and you did just get married just a few weekends ago. I did. It's yeah, about three weeks ago or so. Yeah, it's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It was a big day, um, daunting day. It was very stressful leading up to it, but I had an incredible day and time when it came around. That's awesome, and that's yeah. that's and the important. dress, and you look stunning. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Thank you. And the cake was very pretty too and delicious. <laughs> the cake was amazing. There is plenty left. <laughs> yep, as there often is. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. And to feed 70 people, and I'm sure it would have fed about 80, 85. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so the last question of the podcast is in your ideal world what would the future of the ndis look like funding would be limitless for people (laughs) and (laughs) endless um better trained and educated providers would be a big one you know free training for the providers free training for the uh, workers the managers basic needs being I really like the idea of training and it has come up before, I don't know if on this podcast, but definitely when I've been talking to providers, um, that training is a massive expense and, and look, as it should be. And, Mm. and I'm always on the lookout for providers that do provide training to their, um, staff, but, if the NDIS could factor in the fact that there so much training is needed, um, that would help so many providers to improve on what they're doing. Um, because there's, I, I think too, um, 
some of the TAFE courses could be improved. Yes. Yes. And 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 expand on the content in those TAFE training courses because mm. it's it's they they touch on small areas, but they don't necessarily go into providing the content that is required for each student to actually come out with a knowledge base that they can then put into practice. Correct. The biggest thing I find with TAFE courses and these private entities that pop up and deliver Cert 3, Cert 4 courses is they're all aimed at aged care. So these students are going in, learning how to look after the ageing community, coming out, finding it really difficult to get a job in aged care because it's such a saturated market that they turn to disability because it's still that person-centred approach and work. They go into the job not knowing and understanding the difference between an ageing population and a disability population. Mm. The only time I've ever seen disability training is as an elective added onto the Cert 3 of ageing care after you've completed it. So they need to create their own Cert 3 for disability and deliver that and make sure it's make sure they're separated yeah i i Mm. completely agree because often in aged care it's do for and in disability it's do with and that that is one of the the biggest differences um initially (laughs) and it can be very frustrating when i see people very stuck in the I'll just do everything for you and the participant doesn't get to be capacity built. You know, if if capacity can be built, that's what we want to do. Most definitely, most definitely. Another thing they could improve on is the shift note writing and report writing in (laughs) the training. I, the amount of times we've had to run we don't call them training sessions. We just call them oh, something like improve your writing skills or something with our staff on the basics of how to write a shift note. Like what did you do? What was the time, the kilometres you drove? And not using I, we or me or us statements, like third person, the entirety of a plea. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. And incident reports. Yes. I I need them to teach incident reports. Yes. Some of the incident reports I read are so basic. Like, what happened? Bob fell. Stunning. (laughs) What did he fall on? What was he doing? How did it happen? Yeah. I don't know. Who, what, where, when, how, why? Yeah. Exactly. I, I feel like this is something that most most kids get drilled into them when if throughout throughout school, younger schooling, mm. and it never follows on. No, no. Well, thank you for coming on, Ellie. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's it is been a pleasure talking fun. with you as always. Likewise, I look forward to it again. Yes, and we'll have to get you on again when hopefully we can do it in person. Yes, I, I'll. Try not to have my medication up a few weeks prior to <laughs> events like this. Yeah, but it has been so, so lovely to talk to you and um, get your insights. 
thank you. It's been a pleasure sharing them and hopefully educating the wider community and people in the sector and even outside of the sector. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. You can email us at whatinthendispod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at tulipcoordination.com.au. And to contact Sam, it's sam at rosenbaum.consulting. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.